Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the Lexrex Institute podcast. I'm David. He's Alexander. He's an attorney, but won't be speaking as one today. Nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and the opinions you hear will be our opinions as individuals, not necessarily the opinions of the Lexrex Institute. Learn about us online. Lex Rex means the law is king in Latin. There you go. We're trying a quicker version we of the We did it intro. faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. I, I consider just reading every other word, um, but that... We tried that. Yeah, well, you tried that. I didn't want you to, and it did not work out very well, um, to no one's yeah, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't lie and say that surprised me too much. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we've got a full program for you guys today, so we want to make sure that we're coming in quickly. Before we do that, just remember, check us out on YouTube. We're a few weeks behind now on Ask an Attorney. There were some complications with John Aaron's performing that on a weekly basis, but we are looking for alternate people to host that. We have several ideas. Um, several people have asked to do that, so we are currently getting that back on track. Yep. Also, some things going on with our lawsuits that are currently in progress. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, we filed our Los Alamitos lawsuit on behalf of those fifth grade girls who were housed with persons of indeterminate gender at what was purported to be a science camp. It turned out to be sort of an LGBTQ issues retreat. That's a lawsuit that's currently underway. Going well so far, our lawsuit against the Los Angeles County Registrar and the California Secretary of State has been filed. That is Wolf v. Dean Logan. Dean Logan is the name of the county registrar for Los Angeles. That is a lawsuit challenging an L.A. County vaccine mandate that applies to poll workers. So obviously, you know, lots of professions are subject to vaccine mandates. We've been fighting against those very successfully, about a 90% success rate on those cases that we've taken. But we think that a vaccine mandate for poll workers is really a whole different ball game because when you require a poll worker to get vaccinated, that's an overtly and inherently political act. Look, we know that vaccination for COVID-19 has become a political issue by compelling adherence to one side of that political issue. LA County is basically taking positions in on a political matter in its conduct of an election, which is a very, very serious thing. We're challenging that currently. We actually, based on the way that case has progressed and some of the, the strategy that we talked about beforehand, may have the opportunity to challenge some of the frankly ridiculous uh, justiciability, I don't know, how do you want to say it, justiciability requirements that courts have tried to impose so they can dispose of election challenges in the past. Uh, we may be able to get some very favorable precedent on some of those issues. We'll keep you guys appraised of that as that continues. Just wanted to give a couple updates on those things. David, what do we have planned today? Well, we've got an extra long edition of Captain Kangaroo Court for this week. And, you know, we'll... we'll get I actually participated in a kangaroo court earlier this week. That's one of the reasons why. So we're planning on about half of the episode <laughs> being under that umbrella. But before we get to That's that... right. Captain Kangaroo Court special, folks. Yeah. So for those of you who like that segment, you're going to really enjoy this episode. For those of you who don't, you'll probably want to turn yeah. it off now. Or at least after we finish our first segment, yeah. which is coming up. Yeah. But before we get to, to that, we're going to talk about... A Supreme Court case that we're, you know, we're into the new term with Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson on the court now. And yeah, I believe it's the first time there have been two African Americans simultaneously sitting on our highest court. That sounds plausible. I don't know, but that, that does sound plausible. So the, the case National Pork Producers Council v. Ross is what we're going to be talking about here. 
they... Oh, sorry, take rewind two seconds. But this is the beginning. I thought you did that at the end of the segments. That's the transition, David. But this is the first segment. Look, just to introduce the segment. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about National Pork Producers Council v. Ross, which is a case in the new October term of the Supreme Court. They, which began on October 3rd, um, so that's just gotten started. Yep. Um, yeah. Do you know when this case is going to be heard, the oral argument? Uh, it was case? heard on the 11th, actually. Oh, um, well. So there you go. I was in kangaroo court that day, <laughs> yeah. so I did not get a chance to listen to that. I think it raises a couple interesting issues that we haven't really had the opportunity to talk about before, because yeah. this is a... This was a case that actually Lex Rex was planning to bring, and they beat us to the punch. <laughs> we had a plaintiff on exactly this issue. Briefing looks pretty good, though. I think we could have done it a little bit better. Well. But briefing looks pretty good on this. I think they're in pretty solid shape. So. <laughs> yeah, but this is a case that has to do with what they call the Dormant Commerce Clause. We'll talk about that more later. But... By way of background, that which is not that is not dead, which may eternal lie, <laughs> and in strange eons, even the commerce clause may die. No, that's not true. Commerce clause is eternal. Uh, that will always survive. Was that uh, <laughs> was that a paraphrase of the Cthulhu thing? Um, it is. Yeah. yeah okay. Because he he's dormant. This is the dormant commerce clause. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, by way of background, this case arises from a California ballot proposition, which we've talked about a few of those, I think, over the course of this podcast. This one from 2018. Anyway, so this was Ballot Prop 12, which, among other things, would outlaw the storage of animals that are being raised for, for meat or for eggs or what have you on farms. In particular, outlawing what it calls cruel conditions, basically. And it defines that in various ways, but sort of the key provision is any way of confining an animal that, quote, prevents the animal from lying down, standing up, fully extending the animal's limbs, or turning around freely. And then it goes on to have... That does sound fairly cruel. Yeah. That's, and you know, I, I can see why people would vote in favor of something like that. Yeah. You know, even if you believe in entrepreneurs' rights to run their business as they see fit, you know, a lot of the stuff done in, in food production is stuff we don't really want to think about too much. Yeah. And it does have animal-specific definitions as well. And these, you know, the key here was that these provisions were going to come into play after the ballot prop was adopted, in this case, the one concerning pigs was going to come into play in 2022, which presumably, you know, that's why this is becoming an issue now. But for those who don't know, that is the current year. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the, the clause that specifically has to do with pigs calls for providing any breeding pig, which I believe means, you know, any sow. Oh my gosh, that's unpleasant. I hate that so much. How long is this sound? <laughs> That's a pig sound, David. Yeah. Well, it does go on for 21 more seconds, uh, but I've, I've muted that for you okay. so you can keep talking. Thank you. Oh, gosh, that was awful. Um, anyway, uh, calls for a minimum of 24 square feet of floor space per pig. And so that's sort of become the sticking issue because apparently that's not close to what was industry standard. That doesn't even sound like a pig. Goodness, where am I finding these? That sounds like a, a very young pig. A piglet, I suppose. That's the word. Perhaps. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, the, the Pork Producers <laughs> Council in question has challenged the law on the grounds that it violates 
or, or rather it, it imposes an undue burden on interstate commerce because it will effectively prevent most pork producers outside of California from selling their products in California. Right. Which implicates what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. So if you've listened to this podcast before, really almost any of our episodes, because this comes up so doggone often mm-hmm. whenever any kind of any kind of federal regulation is involved, for reasons we've mentioned before, but just to briefly go over it, basically Congress doesn't have that many powers under the Constitution. Right. They're listed in Article 1, Section 8. And one of those powers, the one that's probably the most capable of being broadly applied, is the power to regulate commerce between the states. Well, we also know, based on the doctrine of preemption, based on the supremacy clause to the Constitution, as well as, you know, just kind of basic logic, that two entities can't have jurisdiction over the exact same thing. Right, David? Yep. Why not? Because then you have conflict of rules without any means of resolving them, basically. You know, right. If, if two people are yeah, in you charge... You can't serve two masters, yeah. right? you got to have one master. And it's you can have different levels of masters, you know, like in a hierarchy. You could have people who are masters over different aspects of things, which happens very frequently oh, yeah. between state and federal governments, but they can't have authority over the exact same thing at any point. So by granting the power to regulate commerce to Congress, by enabling Congress to do that under the Constitution. The Constitution is implicitly denying that power to state governments. State governments may not regulate commerce between states. Yeah. Which makes sense, because they're one state. California shouldn't be able to regulate commerce in Arizona. Maine shouldn't be able to regulate commerce in New Hampshire. I mean, that makes good sense, right? So what we call that is either the negative implications of the Commerce Clause, which I think is a little bit more of an explanatory name, or more commonly, the Dormant Commerce Clause. And it's referred to as dormant because it's not explicitly stated in the text, but may be inferred by negative inference from from the text, which is why I think negative implications is sort of a better way of titling that. But that's the Dormant Commerce Clause. That's what's at issue here. Yeah. Because by imposing requirements upon meat suppliers in California, California has effectively made it so meat from the rest of the country cannot be sold within the state of California. Yeah. Because the requirements that Prop 12 imposes make meat production vastly more expensive than if those requirements are not in place. Very unlikely anybody that doesn't have those requirements legally imposed upon them would ever abide by those requirements because the cost of doing business is so much higher. Yeah, because, you know, there's a reason why the sort of free range organic meat or whatever you get at the grocery store tends to be a whole lot more expensive. It's because turns out to be less efficient on the production yeah. side. Yeah. And so, so a dormant commerce clause, when you talk about dormant commerce clause issues, they're not limited to this, but they tend to be about matters on which a state government has preferred in-state production or in-state commerce in such a way that it discriminates against equivalent commerce coming from outside that state. Yeah. Sounds like exactly what's going on here, doesn't it? Yeah. And... One of the things that seems to have been a a big piece of the oral argument was concern that, you know, because the law that the the ballot prop created was called the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, I believe, something along those lines anyway. It sort of has this flavor that it's, you know, this is a moral issue in, in the minds of California. You know, it's about animal welfare. It's about doing the right thing for animals. And so one of the things that came up during the course of argument was this idea of, okay, 
what if every state tries to sort of impose a similar restriction based on preferred policies that would affect other states and that seems to have been well, but that, that's exactly the state that we had that the state of where law is on this and pretty much since 1986 in maine v taylor i'm not familiar with that case we can talk about it in a bit but <laughs> finish your and do you want to play the clip of, of the oral argument here or could you have california pass a law that said we're not going to buy any pork from companies that don't require all their employees to be vaccinated or from corporations that don't fun gender-affirming surgery or that sort of thing. <laughs> Boy, she's playing to her base. Yeah. That, that's J- Justice Barrett, by the way, saying that. Uh-huh. And <laughs> what do people think California's like, like people that aren't here? That's uh, kind of like that. <laughs> it's, it's very And sad. then uh, <laughs> Mongan, who is representing California here, said, I think we would all recognize that it would be problematic if states can condition the sales of those products on restrictions of wholly unrelated out-of-state purchasers. On restrictions of wholly unrelated out-of-state I mean, wholly unrelated is doing a ton of work in your answers to Justice Barrett. Yeah, and that's then, true. Uh, so that's Brett Kavanaugh weighing in there, and he goes on to say, or to ask about, rather, so what about uh, a law that says uh, you can't sell fruit in our state if it's produced, um, handled by people who are not in the country legally? Is that state law uh, permissible? And it's not. How is it different from this Yeah, law? so this problem, in my view, is, is very much caused by Maine v. Taylor. And, and what Maine v. Taylor was, that was a 1986 case in which Maine had passed a law prohibiting, I think it was the importation of bait fish. Uh, because they were worried about bait fish getting released in streams and lakes in Maine and basically being invasive species. It was an agricultural environmental concern, right? Yep. Um, So somebody imports bait fish, they run afoul of this law, they bring a constitutional challenge saying that Maine's law has violated the Interstate Commerce Clause. And Maine v. Taylor is pretty much still controlling law on the dormant commerce jurisprudence where the court says that, no, this doesn't violate the Commerce Clause because the state of Maine was basically, was advancing an interest of the state of Maine. Basically, the purpose was not to discriminate against commerce. So what we end up getting is a bifurcated test on this issue. Mm -hmm. Previous test, the one that was established in Pike v. Bruce Church Incorporated, a 1970 case, was very simple. Balancing test is the way that we do this. Yeah. What that case had done is... Uh, that case looked at oh, what was being imported. There? It was uh, so I, I did a little research on this. There was an Arizona grower of cantaloupes who That's had right. a packing facility. That's, uh, yeah, I, I remember it now. Yeah. yeah, in California, they were sending the cantaloupes to be packed in California, but turns out Arizona had a law saying any locally produced produce had to be created and labeled as grown in Arizona, which they weren't doing obviously because they were sending it to a different. By, state. by a specific state official, right? A specific state official had to approve the labeling on those cantaloupe boxes saying that they were approved for sale in Arizona. So these ones that were being boxed in California were not compliant with that. They get imported and then this company, it's not actually a church, Pike v. Bruce (laughs) Church Incorporated. Bruce Church is the guy's name. But they bring a constitutional challenge saying that that violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. And that established was for many years, or well, for 16 years at least, <laughs> controlling law on dormant commerce clause issues. Basically what it did is it created a balancing test. And what they said was that where a statute even handedly regulates 
with the intent to effectuate a legitimate local purpose, and the effects on interstate commerce that that produces are only incidental. So you're wanting to protect, well, I guess in this case it failed. <laughs> it's, if, uh, if the law is intended for a, a legitimate purpose of the state and the effects on commerce are only incidental, that law is going to be upheld unless the burden imposed upon that commerce is, quote unquote, clearly excessive in relation to the putative local benefits. Yep. So long story short, you compare whatever the state perceives the benefit of that law to be against the effect that law has on out-of-state commerce. Now, take that, put it in a box, remember that for two seconds. We're going to jump back <laughs> to Maine v. Taylor now. Under Maine v. Taylor, that remains the test, one of the tests. But what Maine v. Taylor does in expanding it, remember Maine v. Taylor is the bait fish case. Yep. Sorry, it's been like five, three minutes <laughs> for those of you who have forgotten since then. Maine v. Taylor is the one about bait fish being imported to Maine. What that case ends up saying is that determining whether a state overstepped its role in regulating interstate commerce, the court needs to distinguish between statutes that burden interstate transactions incidentally, which would be the, the, the Bruce Church, the, the Pike test, the one from Pike v. Bruce Church, and actions that actually affirmatively discriminate against interstate transactions. Statutes in the first group, ones that are like Pike v. Bruce Church, violate the Commerce Clause only if the burdens they impose in interstate commerce are clearly excessive in relation to putative local benefits, the same test we just looked at. Statutes in the second group are subject to a more demanding scrutiny. And there the scrutiny becomes once a state law is shown to discriminate against interstate commerce, either on its face or in practical effect, so discriminatory laws, yeah. the burden falls on the state to demonstrate both that the statute serves a legitimate local purpose and that its purpose could not be served as well by available non-discriminatory means. This is in effect a strict scrutiny test because by saying it could not be served as well by available non-discriminatory means, what does that sound like? I forget. Narrow yeah, tailoring. I was going to say, I, I right? forget which phrase, but one of the tailoring things. <laughs> it's got to be the only way to accomplish this goal. Yeah. Which is obviously pretty difficult to prove in, in a lot of circumstances. Right. So the argument most of the time ends up being over which of these tests is the better applied test. And that's what they're arguing about here in the, in the case that we're talking about right now. The National Pork Producers Council, the Ross, they're arguing whether or not this is a law that burdens interstate commerce merely incidentally or whether it's a law that affirmatively discriminates against such transactions. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because, as, as we've mentioned, probably very few of the big sort of industrial slaughterhouse type farms were going to be in line with the regulations that are coming out of the California law prior to this. So, right. you know, to some extent, I think other industries actually have adapted to California's requirements in part because California is such a big part of the country's economy. But even even in adapting to California's requirements, that's still an imposition on interstate yeah, commerce. Yeah. And that's what I think was actually ignored by both sides in this case. I mentioned earlier that dormant commerce clause cases tend to be instances in which in-state commerce is favored yeah. as against out-of-state. But using your economic heft to get other states to do things the way that California has mandated is debatably, I would say, even more yeah. of a regulation of interstate commerce. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely true. And I, I think that's one of the things that's probably going to be 
on the minds. You know, we, we've heard the justices talking about what if other states try to do this sort of tit for tat thing. But I think one of the things that's overlooking is that there aren't many states that could really come close to matching California in terms of the economic impact. You know, right. Texas doing something. We're the something. fifth largest economy on yeah. earth. You know, it's, we're a very wealthy state. Yeah. If, if we say that you got to do something this way in order to sell things in California, a lot of other states will start doing yeah. that, particularly Western states. Yeah. It, you know, Texas doing something would be sort of comparable on that scale, New York. But beyond that, unless you get like every state between Pennsylvania and Maine to do something together, that's a, roughly the amount that you would need to sort of equal the, the economic right. pool. And that's just not very likely. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you know, on the one hand, it seems kind of the effect on interstate commerce seems kind of incidental, since the obvious will of the voters was just to make sure that animals are treated nicely. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're passing this sort of regulation, it's difficult to imagine that you can see an end other than having an effect of regulating commerce outside the state. So I, I think that. The strict scrutiny test is properly applied. I'm not sure this bifurcation between tests ever made any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it has to do with whether or not a state's action is discriminatory in its intent. I think it has to do with whether or not it's encroaching on the power of Congress. Yeah. And the power of Congress is to regulate commerce between states. So if something has the effect of a regulation, I, you know, I think strict scrutiny ought to apply. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a, you know, California has a very diverse economy. There, it has a pretty significant agricultural segment. I don't think that pork in particular is a big part of the local California economy. Oh, believe me, pork is a big part of the Sacramento economy. Really? Oh, 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 oh yeah. I yeah, mean, in those barrels, you mean? <laughs> Boy, you're the lobbyist yeah. getting all the, the barrels of pork, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that's uh, that's very clever. You know my hatred. Yeah, that's that's me. I'm real sharp. <laughs> you, you, I, I pay close attention. You know my hatred of puns, <laughs> and yet you've still done this to me. But yeah, I don't. I don't know that there there is much. Um, yeah, I, I think. I, I don't know that there's much of the uh, poor sign variety of pork. Yeah, pork. no. Uh, you know, cattle ranching, dairy stuff that that does have a pretty prominent place oh, in yeah. California. Yeah. I think the pork stuff is mostly out of state, if not almost exclusively out of state. So it, yeah, it's hard to see a case where. Right. So, so if you if you've passed this regulation, you're expecting one of two things. Either other states are going to comply with it, in which case you're regulating their commerce by making them comply with it, or no one's going to comply with it because it's too expensive and people in California still want to eat pork. Yep. So you're artificially propping up the California pork industry, right. which would also be a regulation against out-of-state commerce. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the question I, I think here becomes either yeah, under the under the Pike v. Bruce Church test, whether or not the, the burden to interstate commerce outweighs that interest in having uh, properly cared for pigs, or I think more appropriately, the test that really ought to be applied here is whether or not there was a different available means yeah. of protecting uh, pigs from mistreatment. I'm not sure that there was, but this very clearly is a regulation of interstate commerce. I don't think you can argue it's not. Yeah. So, you know, maybe both these tests are flawed. Yeah. And maybe we're going to end up getting a new test. If the excerpts that we just heard from the court are any indication, it seems that the conservative majority, who are typically a little bit more suspect of dormant commerce clause issues, you know, they're less likely to say that something runs afoul of the dormant commerce clause, seems that they're thinking this tends that way. So if that's true, 
the ostensible left wing of the court probably more so. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Although they may be more favorable just to this kind of regulation as such. Well. Uh, just because, you know, people who lean to the political left, I think, are going to tend to favor this kind of regulation uh, more than those on the right. Yeah. So I don't know. The political issues cut both ways on this. Conservative people tend not to like commerce clause overreach. Uh, liberal people tend not to like animal mistreatment. Yeah, we we didn't hear both of those things are valid concerns. But. Yeah, we, we didn't hear from her audio in in the clips that we played. But it's worth noting that uh, Justice Kagan seemed to be at least fairly skeptical about some of the arguments California was bringing. So. Could be an interesting alignment. It doesn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah, could be an interesting alignment of the justices me. when the uh, decision actually does come down. It's funny. I, I'm actually I'm sympathetic to giving animals space to lie down. Yeah. Uh, that seems like a good thing to do sure. to me. <laughs> yeah. But it's so so maybe I fall on the liberal side of that one. But it's funny because I'm also I, I think this is clearly a regulation of interstate commerce. So I fall on the liberal side of that one too. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you know, it pushes both ways on this issue, but I come in on the quote-unquote liberal side on both of those. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. I guess I also don't like regulations. <laughs> right, which is that's, that's sort of a classic conservative <laughs> position, at least in America. Yeah. That's, but, yeah, it will be interesting to see whether the court decides they need some change to the tests to adjudicate this ultimately. I think they do. Yeah. I think those tests have been flawed for decades. I think we've got to replace them. I don't know that balancing tests are the way to go on this. Yeah. And we've got a, a majority on the court now, or at least a plurality on the court, because you got Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito to a lesser extent. You can occasionally get Justice Kavanaugh on board, maybe Justice Barrett, uh, but certainly those three, yeah. you know, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, are all of the opinion that we ought to have black letter tests on this stuff, yeah. tend away from balancing tests may be able to get a better test on this. I really hope so. Yeah. You know, if and when something major does come out of that, we will probably revisit this case. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see when the actual ruling comes down in the opinion of the court, what we get out of that. And if you don't know what a balancing test is, not going to belabor it here, but we've got a video on that on our YouTube channel. That's Lex Rex Institute on YouTube. It's called What is a Balancing Test? Very creative title. I think it has title. fewer mm -hmm. views than any of its... It's got fewer views than any of our other videos, I think. <laughs> I think it's our worst viewed video. So I guess you guys all know what balancing tests are. So <laughs> don't check that out. <laughs> all right. So with that, I guess it's... Play your transition sound. Oh, oh, thank you, yeah. David. I almost forgot about the transition uh -huh. sound. Um... <laughs> We're an epic podcast. <laughs> yes. And I hope you have the Captain Kangaroo music queued up because it's time for our... Oh, oh, oh yes, yes. Uh... All right. Gather around, folks. Uh, rich and poor, young and old, shy and bold, uh, smart and stupid, uh, wh whatever other dichotomous ways there are of dividing humanity. Please come and join us once again for another segment of the ever-popular part of this show... Captain Kangaroo Court. So, it's going to be an extra long episode today because, well, you know, kangaroo courts are part of all of our lives. Yeah. Well, at least part of my life. So it's got to be. <laughs> yeah, true enough. It's got to be most of this podcast now. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of kangaroo courts, earlier this week, I had the opportunity or to <sighs> represent one of my clients before the personnel board of the Long Beach Unified School District. And, boy, this was the most 
Talk about a lack of due process rights. I don't know how many of you folks have seen the movie Paths of Glory. David, have you seen it? I that? haven't. I'm familiar with it, and it's been on my sort of list of things to watch for quite a long time, but have not seen it. Well, that, that's about a military court martial during World War I by the French military court. Uh, pretty much the kangaroo court par excellence. Yeah. Uh, and it was very reminiscent of that. I mean, they keep saying, look, they've got a personnel handbook that specifies what the rules are on this stuff. So I try to hold them to those rules, and they say, no, we're not going to do any of that because we don't feel like it. <laughs> okay, but it's in your procedures that you've got to do that. Yeah, but those are more of guidelines. Yeah. All mm-hmm. right. Well, the California Education Code doesn't say those are guidelines. Government Code doesn't say those are guidelines. You're bound by that. No, not going to do it. All right, well, fine. We'll just establish a record, make note of all these different things you've done to deprive my client of his rights. Then once we get to a real court, we'll be able to point out what you did and you'll get in trouble. <laughs> but we got to abide by all your stupid policies and procedures right now because there's no, there's nothing we can do about it until we get to the real court after you've made your decision. So basically, they're trying to fire my client because my client has not gotten vaccinated or tested for COVID-19. And... Actually, they tried to fire him right after Labor Day of last year. That was when I got involved, Labor Day 2021. Uh, and we actually managed to get him paid all the way through this year, despite them not letting him show up to work. So they've been paying him that whole time. We've been through tons of procedural hurdles before that. We were told there would be discovery allowed prior to this hearing. They allowed no discovery. All they allowed was the subpoena of witnesses. But And even though the code says they're supposed to subpoena those witnesses themselves, they wouldn't do it, wanted us to subpoena them, uh, refused to subpoena anybody that wasn't a an employee of the school district, uh, and then didn't allow us to depose anybody prior to the hearing, even though it was very clear their counsel had met with all the witnesses beforehand huh. and questioned them. I still think we had a really good showing. The personnel officer obviously is on all they do is hear this kind of matter every day. They're obviously going to be very biased in favor of the school district. I doubt that she's going to side in our favor. Yeah. Um, but we managed to convince her on some of the legal issues. And, you know, at the very least, we, we managed to get all the evidence heard that we needed. So it went well as far as something like that can go. But kangaroo courts aren't really fair. So <laughs> doubt we'll get a fair ruling on it. Yeah. That's one of our cases I just wanted to let you guys know about since that was a very frustrating experience I had yeah. here in this And, week. you know, I found that that sort of thing... The non, well, not really non-legal because obviously they are bound by laws and they're supposed, you know, there's law, all kinds of things they're supposed to be complying with. But lots of organizations, I guess, is, is the best way to say it. Just like tons of different organizations always seem to be under the impression that they don't actually have to follow any particular procedures for things. The argument always goes the same way. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard it before, David. I know I have, and I'm sure I'll hear it many times again. Yeah. That argument is, we've always done it this way. Yeah. The thing you're saying can't be right because we've never done it that way. We've always done it this other way. You're wrong. Right. Regardless of what it says. I'm sorry, but we've always done it that way is not just a bad argument. It's not an argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a logical fallacy called the Pilto tradition. Yep. You know, if you are an organization that has bylaws or, you know, a handbook or, you know, Anything that you've written down on paper and that's supposed to be the way it goes, you're supposed to do it that way. You're not supposed to just ignore. Right. Uh, yeah. If you've always done it wrong, that's not to your credit. Right. That's to your that detriment. That can actually, yeah, be a bigger problem. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, oh, what am I supposed to say? Like, it's so reassuring that it's, I'm not the only person whose rights you've summarily dismissed. Yeah. Anyway. 
Like, oh, oh, well, if, if everybody gets their rights deprived and nobody gets a right to due process on this, well, then I guess I'll sit down and shut up. No, no I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fight that, which is what I did and what I will continue to do on this case, because that is an absurdity. Uh, if you ever hear somebody making the argument that we've always done it this way, when there are actual rules that bind that person, that person is a tyrant. Yeah, and actually, it occurs to me, that's not even the worst version of that or argument that I've heard. The worst version is, yes, I get that those are the rules, but it would be so inconvenient. <laughs> well, that was that was their initial response, because <laughs> we allowed to subpoena witnesses, but they didn't allow us any written discovery. So, we, you know, we couldn't ask them, admit or deny X. We couldn't say, like, what are your documents proving why? No. Uh, we, they just said, Call witnesses. We're not going to give you any written discovery. So we called every single Long Beach Unified School District employee, uh, which I think is like 2,000 people. And they didn't want to do that yeah. because they thought that that would make the hearing take weeks and weeks uh -huh. and weeks. And they were yeah. right. It would have done that. <laughs> we, we were perfectly willing to stipulate to written discovery instead. But they just said, no, even though the code says that you're allowed to call as many witnesses as you want, we're not going to allow that because it would take too long. So then we called, the, I think we called like 30 uh -huh. uh, witnesses after that. And they wouldn't allow that either. <laughs> they were like, the point of this hearing is just so that we can say that we were right and we're going to fire your client. It wasn't really so that you could be heard out at all. Uh, that's pretty clear. Yes. Eventually, we, 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 we did end up calling like seven or eight witnesses, which were all that we really needed for our case. Nothing they ended up producing, nothing the other side produced was really that surprising. Yeah. But it very well could have been if they'd had more capable attorneys. And that's why you're supposed to have discovery. Right prior to a hearing so that you know what each side has and you can prepare how to respond to it. When you don't have that, I think there's a very clear argument that due process has been denied. And we're going to be bringing a due process challenge on that if we if we're able to move forward. Yeah. On yeah, maybe, you know, I guess this is the dark side of kangaroo courts, what we've just heard about, which, uh, you know. <laughs> really? There's a downside? Yeah, you know, uh, really all of it. It's just sometimes it's uh, more entertaining because it's, you know, further away from us. <laughs> those those hor horrible courts like they used to have over in England uh, where, where there are kangaroos. Yeah, uh, which uh, <laughs> before any listeners who don't remember that conversation get really mad at us for saying that, we know that's not right. Um, <laughs> but... I overheard a conversation once where someone said that. It's in the first episode that we have Captain Kangaroo yeah. part, whichever that is. But if you, if you want to uh, anyway, um, but let's move on now. This next thing was a suggestion from the audience, but it's this concept, this this tree that they call the tree that owns itself. And actually, the current tree who calls it that, is David? the son of the tree that owns itself. Who calls it that? Who calls uh, it that? Well, yeah. as it turns out, people who are uh, wrong because the tree... Wrong the, the tree doesn't actually own itself, and we'll talk about that. No, trees can't own themselves. Yeah. Uh, trees don't have property. Trees are property. Yeah, trees. Um, trees. Trees don't own property. Generally speaking, someone someone no. owns a tree, but um, yeah, that's <laughs> the trees are inanimate objects. They they can't own things. But this is a tree that people claim owns itself. Yes. I guess by way of a deed, mm -hmm. uh, was deeded to it. Nobody really knows when. Uh, there's like a huge range of time they think it might have yeah. been. Some from the, sometime from the mid-16th to the late 18th century. Yeah. So That's over 200 years. Yeah. It turns out, you know, basically uh, th this tree exists in Athens, Georgia. And as I mentioned, it's no longer actually the tree that owns itself. It's offspring of that tree now. The old tree died. They replanted one of the acorns. Wait, so does the new tree not own itself, uh, <laughs> ostensibly? That's a good question, because apparently, you know, the new moniker is the son of the tree that owns itself. 
I guess even if well, the tree if, ever if, if did. Property, so if, if the tree if the tree that owned itself died intestate, then the son of the tree that owns itself would also own itself because that would in, it would inherit yeah the tree's property that's, and one of the trees. Yeah, that's a fair point. But it it also you know it occurs to me shouldn't it be the son of the tree that owned itself if the tree is dead, even if it ever did own itself doesn't currently do that. I think the name of the tree is the tree that owns itself. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. So, but yeah. This, this, uh, this story seems to have entered the public consciousness in the year 1890. That's so stupid, though. It's so stupid. <laughs> when, uh, like, in uh, a newspaper in Athens called the Athens Weekly Banner ran an article about this tree that so the tree was allegedly the property of a colonel in the U.S. Army, William Henry Jackson, and he supposedly was so fond of this tree that he wrote out a deed for, you know, saying that I'm going to give this tree not only itself. Here's the text. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Let me yeah. read the text. I, W.H. Jackson of the county of Clark of the one part and the oak tree of the county of Clark of the other part witnesseth that the said W.H. Jackson, for and in consideration of the great affection which he bears said mm-hmm. tree, and his great desire to see it protected, has conveyed, and by these presents do convey unto the said oak tree, entire possession of itself and all of the land within eight feet of it on all sides. Yeah. Ooh, boy, lots of <laughs> issues here. Yep. Okay, first issue. Great affection is not consideration. So all contracts have to have consideration in order for contracts to be valid, uh, which means there must be a detriment to the obligee or a benefit to the obligor. You could argue, of course, that great affection is a benefit, but that is not a tangible benefit. Moreover, more importantly, that great affection has occurred prior to the execution of this contract, and past consideration is not consideration. Moreover, he says it's in consideration of the great affection that he bears the tree. So that still wouldn't be consideration from the tree to him. That'd be consideration from him to the tree. So not (laughs) valid consideration for a contract. Other thing is, any conveyance in real property rightly does have to be by a writing that's under the statute of frauds that was passed during the reign of Elizabeth, I believe. However, there also has to be delivery of a deed conveyancing real property. This deed was not delivered. Now, a a deed can be actually delivered, it can be symbolically delivered, or it can be constructively delivered. You can't actually deliver a deed to a tree because the tree ain't got no hands. Yeah, sure. You you cannot constructively deliver a deed to a tree because a tree don't have... I'm not going to use the improper grammar. (laughs) Because a tree does not have any agents or a sign. Sure. So you can't deliver it to his secretary, for instance. Tree doesn't have that. I mean, it has maybe woodpeckers or or squirrels. Maybe a gardener. But it's not clear but, that those. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's that's still not not. But quite the right. the gardener is probably acting on behalf of Jackson. Yeah. It's probably not acting exactly. on behalf of the tree. <laughs> it's not clear that the squirrels and woodpeckers are acting on behalf of the tree either. So I don't think yeah. they could be. I, I don't think they are agents. actually acting on its behalf. In fact. No, I, I would go yeah. that far mm-hmm. as well. I can I can actually take my statement further. They're not acting on its <laughs> behalf. They're acting on its own behalf. And it can't be symbolically delivered either because there's nothing. I mean, symbolic delivery has to do like with if you hand somebody the key to a factory sure. yeah. as, as a way of delivering that factory. I'm not sure how you would constructively deliver an area of land that's eight feet on all sides and has nothing in it but a tree, yeah. otherwise empty, you know, eight feet on all sides parcel of land. I don't know how you constructively deliver that. So there's no way for this deed to have been delivered yeah. to the tree. That's your second issue. I've sort of left out 
really the <laughs> elephant in the room, the biggest issue of why this tree can't have been deeded itself, which it's is... A, it's a tree. It's yeah, a tree. that's the, it's the same sort of fundamental issue that prevents you from delivering property to it in any way is that it, it can't actually be, you know, an agent uh, in any meaningful sense. Um, so, yeah. I, I found it, I was looking at the Wikipedia article on this. Uh-huh. And it's funny, it says, most writers acknowledge the deed is lost or no longer exists. That actually doesn't make any difference at all. Uh, unless there were a dispute over the ownership, in which case they would have the evidence under statute of frauds by the writing. But as to current ownership makes no difference whether or not it, that deed still exists. But anyway, it goes on. If it, if it in fact ever did exist, such a deed would have no legal standing. They used the wrong yeah. word there, but do trees have legal standing? That's a, ooh, that's a juicy question. <laughs> that's going to lead us. Oh, most would say yeah. no. You know, a less courageous man, uh, your your average person, your your run of the mill person who understands basic legal concepts in the legal yeah. tradition of the entire Western world, much less England and America, uh-huh. would say no. Trees don't have standing. Of course not, you fool. Go back to where you came from. Trees can't possibly have standing. They aren't right. people. But a more courageous mm-hmm. man, one less studied in the legal <laughs> traditions of England and America, thinks otherwise. Yeah. Who is that man? Well, it's a Supreme Court justice, as it turns out. <laughs> None other than the notorious flanderer and drunkard, William Douglas, Justice William Douglas. We've heard from him before. Yes, that's right. Have we uh, not? He, you may remember him from our conversation about uh, the Griswold v. Connecticut decision. Oh, what's this? What's this? That's right. It's a secret Hall of Shame episode. <laughs> What are we doing, David? A Hall of Shame episode in the middle of Captain Kangaroo Court. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort of. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so William O. Douglas. We've heard from him before in Griswold v. Connecticut. That was the case that uh, created, out of thin air, a constitutional right to privacy, which can be found where? Well, I was going to say, thin air may be the way you would like to put it. I think he would prefer that you say it was created out of the emanations of the penumbras <laughs> of the shadows. By penumbras yeah. implied by rights found in the shadows of rights that may be inferred from rights explicitly stated in the Bill of Rights and 14th That's Amendment. That's right. Um, as clear as the summer sun. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, Justice Douglas, you know, he is never one to shy away from an unconventional argument. So what does he think about trees and whether or not they have... I, I get... Do people know what doctrine of standing is? We should probably talk about that first. We've, right? we've at least alluded to this several times. And I, to, you know, take one step back, we're talking about the case Sierra Club v. Morton. We're not going to probably spend as much time on the background as we normally would in Hall of Shame episodes, but that's, that's the case. Standing, though, and this is the key point, is basically the ability of a particular entity to bring suit. So... You know, you can't just... You're the right person you know. to sue. It means you're the right person to sue over right. something. You know, if, if if I kick David in the shin and it hurts, Ow. you, the listener, can't sue me for that. Yeah. David has to sue me for that. He has standing for that because he's the one that suffered the right. injury. Yeah. So the, the case, or rather the question that uh, Justice Douglas wants to ask in relation to this case 
uh, which had to do. He should, he just sees no way the trees can win this case. <laughs> I, think, I think don't they decide Sierra Club doesn't have standing? Yeah, because uh, Sierra Club sued for some environmental thing. I don't remember all the so, details. Yeah. Uh, but they said as it, uh, j- j- very briefly, Sierra Club, which is an environmental organization, wanted to sue to prevent the development of a big ski resort in Mineral King Valley, which was this you know. I've never been there. Neither has Justice Douglas, but that doesn't stop him. Um, but, it, you know, supposedly, you know, very beautiful place. They tried to prevent development from occurring there. and Even though they didn't know. Right. And so they presented themselves as um, suing in the public interest, basically. Right. Right. And, you know, there are rules for being an organizational plaintiff. I'm not sure if they tried to avail themselves of that. Uh, basically, they argued in the public interest. That's just not going to cut it. No. But Justice Douglas really wants them to have their day in court. So he says, well, you know, if Sierra Club doesn't have standing, yep. maybe the trees <laughs> themselves have standing. Yep. And what does he have to say about that? Well, there's a very famous passage. A lot of very silly yep. things. <laughs> there's a very famous passage. The critical question of standing would be simplified and also put neatly in focus if we fashioned a federal rule that allowed environmental issues to be litigated before federal agencies or federal courts in the name of the inanimate object about to be despoiled, defaced, or invaded by roads and bulldozers and where injury is the subject of public outrage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, well, that's a bold proposition, Cotton. Let's, let's uh, how does he support this? You know, what kind of argument does he give in favor uh, of this? Well, well, from my perspective, uh, his argument is basically to fundamentally misunderstand what uh, corporations are. Mm, always an interesting strategy. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's a bold strategy. We'll see if it pays out for him. So he goes on to say, Inanimate objects are sometimes parties in litigation, he says. Yep. A ship has a legal personality. Uh-huh. That's right, ships can sue. <laughs> That's true, it says the reader, mm-hmm. and ships are made of wood, <laughs> just like trees. Much, much the same. <laughs> yeah. The corporation soul, a creature of ecclesiastical law, is an acceptable adversary, and large fortunes ride on its cases. Yep. So, Dave, you want to explain what an ecclesiastical soul, or I'm sorry, corporation soul is? <laughs> so the idea, and this is, again, why I think he's fundamentally missing the concept It means here. like a priest, right? No, it's it's more like a bishopric or something. You know the idea. You know, uh, right? Someone occupying a transpersonal office. Like there will always be, or at least you know, for the, the bishop future, of Los Angeles yeah, refers sure. to a person regardless of who that person is. Right. Like a corporation. Yeah, and so even though it's only one guy, he has legal interests as the bishop that he does not have as an individual person. What so, I find very funny. Is that his argument is about in, uh, inanimate objects having standing? Yeah. He lists fully one inanimate uh, object <laughs> before moving on to an abstract concept that yeah. is not and, an inanimate object. No. And even even the one that he does list, ships only have standing as <clears throat> um, a corporation. Right. Uh, it's it's not that the sh- the ship is interest is you know suing in the interest of its own materials it's not like yeah. the steel or the wood or whatever suing it's you know the people who <laughs> like own i just the ship i just want to float around i don't want to transport guns anymore my the yeah. people that own me want to transport <laughs> guns but i don't like doing it i'm gonna, I'm gonna sue them no yeah if your yeah, owners it, want you to transport guns you're going to transport guns it's yeah. their interests that are protected because it's the interests of the corporation not the ship as such that's very very silly 
Right. It's just, I, I don't understand how he thought this was a good, good idea to sign his name to. I just think it's so funny that he has one example and that he moves and on to something so that wrong. isn't an inanimate object. Yeah, well, yeah, it, even his one example is horrible. But it's, it's completely it. wrong. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, so it should be as respective values. So yeah, he goes on. So it's like also corporations are, are things that representation. So that's his sole argument. One paragraph where he just lists only one thing that even appears to be a kind of inanimate object. And then he moves on to, so yeah. it should be for valleys, alpine meadows, rivers, lakes, estuaries, beaches, ridges, groves of trees, swampland, and even air that uh -huh. feels the destructive pressure of modern technology and modern life. The river, for example, is the living symbol of all life that it sustains or nourishes. Fish, aquatic insects, otter, fisher, deer, elk, bear, and all other animals, including man, who are, wait, including man? So he's yeah. arguing that rivers ought to have interests that control the actions of people when they sue and I'm going to move on. Um, <laughs> uh, who are dependent on it and who enjoy it for its sights, its sound, or its life. The river as yeah. plaintiff speaks for the ecological unit of life that is part of it. Those people who have a meaningful relation to that body of water, whether it be a fisherman, a canoeist, a zoologist, or a logger, must be able to speak for the values which the river represents and which are threatened with destruction. Yeah. Um, that's animism. That's the, the manner in which he fundamentally misunderstands American law is that he thinks that it's tribal animism. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what, certainly one way of conceiving of that. He's I, saying I there's a river spirit and that people should be able to step in and act on that river spirit's behalf. That's well, not no, the no, way no, it no, works no. in America. It's, it's just a symbol and why he thinks that should be a meaningful... Uh, yeah, but we, we, ought to, we ought to... He is creating a hypostasization, a hypostasis of river as river <laughs> yeah, with rights uh, that may be defended by people. That is animism, David. I'm not, I'm not sure that your vocabulary there is going to help people <laughs> very much who, who aren't familiar with uh, uh, some, some classical philosophy. But uh, I take your point, yes. Treating the river as, a, you, you, frankly, the things he named would all be better plaintiffs than the river itself yeah. well i mean not like the fish would be about no the river the river is the worst you're right the river is the yeah. worst plaintiff. like i'm not saying yeah i'm not because the river is not fish. even land the river exactly. is water that runs through different parcels of I'm, land. I'm not saying that the fish should have standing or the otters just or that they're I'm better than the river it would be better than yeah. giving the river so this is actually um, a classic bad judge move because not only is he making an inherently absurd point here he carries it further than his case requires yeah, and trees are a better out, recipient of legal standing than a river. I, I want to point out too, this Shame. reads like a student essay Shame. where he is trying Shame. to fill up a word count. Like he has these pointless lists that just his get, actual argument is just that one paragraph, and the rest is pointless yeah. lists. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you know, fish, aquatic insects, water ooze. I don't even know what that is. What's a oozel otter fisher deer elk bear and all other animals like it's <laughs> i think it's a kind of bird isn't it i i you could maybe i don't know but then you know he goes on to argue later he says like you know oh i get that we're concerned now that anyone who just hears about something would show up then and try to testify on behalf of the the swamp or the mountain or whatever but don't worry about that we'll restrict it to people who know the area and my question is... That's anim... That's what... Like, look, it just keeps getting more animistic as you describe it. 
It's literally the spirit of this area. Like it's not even, you know, it's it's not even yeah. the point of polytheism. Like it's, it's super ancient <laughs> religion. Because at least polytheists would say there is an abstract entity that represents this river. Yeah. It, to, to Justice Douglas, it really is just the spirit of this river. And you can yeah. know it if you've been there. You know, basically, you want expert witnesses who can testify to how enjoyable this thing is, like to, to what you feel like when you're in it. And um, you ever seen the movie Rashomon? It's a, I have another movie. one. Yeah, that is another one that is on my list. In addition to so, Paths of Glory, you know, obviously, feudal Rashomon. Japan is an animistic society, or was an animistic society, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's what Japan was. In that movie. Uh, basically, the, the whole shtick of that movie is that it's the same event told from everybody's different perspectives. Right. One of yep. the perspectives is a person who died in this event who is having their testimony presented by basically like a soothsayer, a um, uh, a mystic. Medium. You know, a, yeah. Somebody, yeah, a medium. Somebody who communicates with the dead in court. Yep. So she's in court, testifying in court, contacts this dead person, and then speaks as this dead person. It's actually a very disturbing scene but kind of funny when described that that's a little better than what Justice <laughs> Douglas is suggesting. Because yeah. like while that is hearsay, nested within hearsay, while there is no way for the court to cross-examine the person's testimony that's being conveyed, at the very least, we've got a witness in court who claims personal knowledge of at least that person yeah. via, you know, using mystical powers to contact her from beyond the grave yeah and at um, least notionally the person being mystically represented is in fact a person as opposed right. to like a mountain or uh -huh. a river <laughs> like the tree's not even there the tree's words or the river's <laughs> words aren't even being heard in court it's just this right. guy that says yeah i have sort of a mystical knowledge of what's good <laughs> for this tree or this yeah. river that uh -huh. you haven't seen hasn't appeared in front of you your honor listen to what i say about it yeah, I've canoed on... The, this is one of the things he, he lists, is canoeists. So I've canoed on this river. I know it's good for this river. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's really place. easy to pick apart this opinion because it's just horrendously it's, it's bad. bad. It's, it's yeah, really bad. It, it's worth keeping in mind, this guy was hated. Justice Douglas was hated by all of his interns because apparently he was sort of a monster to work for. He would get very, very angry and shout at people and throw things at him. Uh, he also was a notorious drunkard. He also was had a habit of um, having affairs with his clerks and interns and then divorcing uh -huh. his wife and marrying them. Like one of them, I think he was like in his 60s and he married like a 23 year old. Yeah. And the disparities in age just keep getting faster because he's only going one way and the clerks <laughs> all tend older, to be about the same age forever. They stay the same so. age to, to paraphrase <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, anyway. so, you know, he's not a real stellar example of judicial conduct. I don't know that he's a real stellar example of judicial reasoning either. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, if you want to hear more about him, because we did go into a bit about him uh, when we did Griswold, you can listen to that episode. Uh, any, any, more, well. um, any more nuggets of gold from this, from this dissenting opinion, David? Not that that I have off the top of my head, but uh, it's, it's, an in, it's an interesting read if you want to look it up I, again. I kind of like this one. Now, perhaps they will not win. Perhaps the bulldozers of, quote-unquote, progress, in scare quotes, will plow under all the aesthetic wonders of this beautiful land. That is not the present question. The sole question is, who has standing to be heard? Yeah. Uh, Those well, who climb the Appalachian Trail. And he goes on 
bunch of other different things you can do in nature, certainly should have standing to defend those natural wonders before courts or agencies, though they live 3,000 miles away. You know, honestly, I, I love nature. I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that people should be able to protect the interests of keeping things as they are instead of developing them. There ought to be a way to do that. Yeah. What we're really looking at is an inherent problem of the fact that the federal government owns so doggone much land. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, that especially in the West, much much less the case in the East Coast, but vast swaths of land on Look, in the American West. There are ecological reserves out where I live that have nothing to do with government. They are privately purchased land. Interested citizens got together and they purchased that land so that it would continue to be used exactly the way it is. There are other circumstances where, you know, as a condition of granting a use permit to, well, the one I'm thinking of was to an oil company. They said, well, you have to preserve all these acres of land in this other place. Yeah. That's, there are options here that use traditional remedies available under existing law that if people really care about it, can ensure that our natural world is protected. Right, yeah. Recourse that, that's to the, animism is not the way, folks. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the key takeaway here. It's not that we're saying there should never be an option to preserve some natural feature. It's that the way to do that is not to give the trees or the mountains standing in court. It just Real people yeah. with real interests can protect those interests if they care about them. Yeah. I mean, it's th there is no substitute for citizen involvement. There just isn't. You can't say, right. well, hopefully the government will take care of it. I'm not going to worry about it. If you care about something and you think that thing is worth keeping, you have to do it. And that's true with nature. It's also true with our Constitution. That's the reason the Lex Rex Institute exists. We are here to educate you so that you can be empowered to defend your constitutional rights. I am sure there are other organizations that do the same thing with the environment. I'm sure there are other ones that do it with you know, historical sites, whatever it may be. There's so, you need to get educated about it and you need to be able to defend it, prepared to defend it, and then step up and do that. Or it's, it's not going to be here forever, regardless of what the thing is. There is no quick, simple fix. You can't just say, well, let's make it, you know, let's make this one thing true and we're gonna make sure that all the things we care about are protected and guarded. No, vigilance is what protects those things. Yep. And, and that's, you know, that, that's the reason I bring Justice Douglas's personal conduct into this at all is I think that that's the, the sort of mentality somebody is coming from when they look for quick fixes like this. It's not something that you do when you very soberly, soundly decide to protect something that matters. It's saying, I want to take zero responsibility for it, but I want it to still be here in the future anyway. Uh, and that's what I find so particularly offensive about this. Yeah. Anyway, we have exceeded our normal time, uh, so we're probably going to have to call it there. But... That's, I think, a good note to end on because that is sort of the fundamental mission of the organization is to help the public understand and feel empowered to protect their rights. So if you do, if you do care about your constitutional rights, we have lots of volunteer opportunities. We've just started the Open Book Project. That is an effort to audit and make public the curriculum of public schools throughout the United States. That is a hugely important topic. We know that not everybody has time. If you don't have time, we'll take your money too. <laughs> uh, it's, you yeah. can go to our website, lexrex.org slash donate. Really, it's, our, our clients, we don't like to make our clients foot the majority of their bills. If you're going to defend your constitutional rights, that's already a huge sacrifice. You make yourself a target for all yeah. kinds of ostracization and attacks. Those people should not be paying to do it. 
we want to cover those fees. And the only way that we can do that is if people join us by funding those cases. That really is the very best way that you can defend constitutional rights is by funding those who have stepped up to put themselves in the crosshairs. Uh, you can do that at lexrex.org. Really, every penny that you send us goes directly to the fight for constitutional liberties. Yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna play the Captain Kangaroo theme again to outro, or are we just gonna? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? With extended Captain <laughs> Kangaroo court, so we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening once again. It's an episode of Captain Kangaroo Court. If you want to prevent kangaroo courts like the ones that I experienced earlier this yep. week, or <laughs> kangaroo courts for anybody ever again, uh, please donate to Lex Rex Institute at lexrex.org/donate. We would really appreciate those contributions. We've got some expensive cases coming up. But, you know, we trust you folks. So that's the American people. I think they see where there's a need and they're able to step up when needed, like in that wonderful Jimmy Stewart movie. It's a wonderful life. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thank you for listening, folks. As always, check out our other content if you're wanting more Lex Rex Institute content before the next episode comes out. Uh, Anything else to say, David? I kind of cut you Uh, off there during our our funding pitch earlier. (laughs) Nope. uh, (laughs) That was... You know, I was just, I was trying to find a graceful transition, and I feel like you did that just fine. So, uh, thank you. As you said, thanks everyone for listening, and we hope that you'll listen again. Uh, Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone.